Welcome to the Fantasy End Podcast, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. Welcome to the Fantasy End. Welcome back to the Fantasy End Podcast. This week is a special episode where we'll be talking about online conventions. With everything that's happened in 2020, traditional face-to-face conventions have mostly made a switch to a virtual format. So joining me today are three organizers of online conventions. And now I'll let each of them introduce themselves and the cons they've been involved with. Elle, if you want to start. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm L.D. Lewis. I was the director of the first ever FIACON that happened last weekend. Uh, Apart from that, I am also the art director and project manager for FIA Literary, the magazine entity out of which FIACON happened. This was my first convention on the organizer side. So prior to this, I'd only attended things and listened in on other people's conversations about their having attended things. Excellent. Uh, I guess, Adri, if you want to go next. Hi, my name's Adri. I am a co-editor at the fanzine Nerds of a Feather Flock Together. I'm here today because I was part of the Motley Collective that put together Conzeal and Fringe over the Worldcon that happened a few months ago. And... Yeah, sort of had an experience with fringe programming, which was awesome in my first experience uh, running a con type thing. I guess it wasn't running the con itself. Yeah. And Allie? Hey, uh, I'm Allie Charlesworth. I am the co-chair of Multiverse Science Fiction Fantasy Convention. Uh, We are uh, a fairly new con. We started last year in 2019 was our first year. And so this, of course, was our first virtual year. So. Yeah, and I'm thrilled that we have the three of you here today, especially because between the three of you, you all have a different experience with this. I know L Fiacon was originally for its first year an online convention. Ali Multiverse had to make the switch from last year to this year. And Adri, uh, you know, the Zealand Fringe was kind of thrown together with a very short time frame. So definitely looking forward to hearing all of your perspectives. But before we dive into this, uh, hopefully... I guess things are slightly less busy now for all of you, now that your respective cons have finished this year. I know you probably all are involved with multiple projects, though. No, not even remotely. (laughs) Uh, Right right now, I'm in the process of getting um, all of our promised content um, added to our archives so that the weekend ticket holders can access the panels and things that they missed live. Uh, And with that, comes all sorts of really fun um, technical issues, uh, corrupted files, massive file sizes. I think each panel is over a gig, so we've had to find storage space for that. Paying vendors, um, we've actually made enough off of the first event that we'll actually be able to pay our um, our volunteers, uh, so that's kind of cool. But yeah, so my job is not done. Everyone else has been kind of dismissed and relieved, but I'm still grinding away. Yeah, it's the same for us. Um, we because Conceal and Fringe happened in such a short space of time, there were quite a lot of things that we didn't think about beforehand, one of which being um transcripts and ensuring things were captioned. So we are in a position where I think all of us 
put together the con were then really, really enthusiastic. And the transcripts have unfortunately taken a lot longer than we expected, but it, it's still an ongoing process and we are going to do it. So Elle, I really, uh, I sympathize with the feeling that it, it's it's not actually over when the event finishes. Nope. <laughs> so we were actually pretty lucky that uh, I, I guess we decided back in July or June, I can't remember exactly when, all of the months just are one giant long horrible, horrible month now. But anyway, back in the summer sometime, we decided that we would move to, uh, you know, digital format. And so we planned for it to all be done ahead of time. So we, we were pretty lucky that we have some really great volunteers who made sure that all of the digital stuff was, was done before con started. So we were lucky in that, that sense. Fantastic. Well, I guess diving into some of the talking points I have for all of you, uh, the first one is kind of the immediate thing that jumps to mind for me is just what are some of the challenges and advantages of the virtual format compared to, say, the traditional in-person convention? I've only ever done virtual, so whoever wants to go. Okay. Um, So I've done both. Um, We did Multiverse uh, 2019 was in person, and then this year was virtual. Um, So for us, uh, Challenge-wise, there were definitely some steep learning curves for uh, the technical side of things. You know, I'm I'm fairly tech fluent, but not to the extent that I needed to be for this. Um, and we definitely did not have the digital infrastructure in place already. Um, you know, because we didn't intend to be an online convention. And not only were we not necessarily familiar with the digital platforms that we used, um, but guests or attendees, they weren't always familiar with Discord or how to, you know, watch videos and and do a watch party on a different platform. Um, So there was a lot of of making, you know, adjustments to get everyone on the same page as far as uh, instructions for, for the tech. And I think that for us, the biggest challenge really was trying to make sure that the art show and dealer spaces got enough sales driven to them in this new uh, COVID world uh, with everything online. You don't get that, you know, hand selling urgency in a dealer's room necessarily that you might get at a, an in-person con. That was a, that was a, a strange one to have to try to overcome. Adri, did you have stuff you wanted to add? Yeah, I guess um, so. The the French project's kind of interesting in that way, in that we were developed to try and take advantage of one of the the elements that we thought was a bit of untapped potential with Worldcon itself, which was the time zones. Um, so myself, um, Claire Rousseau, who was kind of the lead on the um, Conceal and Fringe, and several other other participants are all in Europe or the UK. Um, sorry, Europe. the UK is in Europe. Uh, I'm a big proponent of that. But yeah, continental Europe or the UK. Um, <laughs> so just, just to get political for a little moment there. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, so we were all in the UK. Uh, the con was around the other side of the world from us, so we were all sort of looking forward to self-imposed jet lag and late nights. And I know that the Con Zealand team had discussed having things in different time zones, and and it hadn't come through. Yeah, for for various pre-con reasons, which we don't need to go into, we ended up in a position where we did want to organise some alternative content, and we were able to do that at times that 
you know, very selfishly suited us, but also brought the con experience to a wider audience. So I think that's something, yeah, that's obviously something you can't do at an in-person con because you are in the same geographic time zone that was really useful to do in that virtual space. And I know that FireCon also had fringe content, which uh, ran through the first night. Yeah, that was fun. I think part of the reason we actually did fringe the way we did it was because we did see efforts, sort of like guerrilla programming efforts um, for other conventions um, that weren't really recognized by the main convention that they were, you know, supplementing. So we kind of wanted to make sure that we, um, as, as kind of an experimental effort, we wanted to make sure that we kind of, we wanted to cover everyone. So uh, Iori Kusano and Vita Cruz, they organized our fringe content, um, and that was our free tier stuff. Uh, didn't include the rest of the weekend. So people, um, people who like bought weekend tickets, they had access to fringe stuff. Um, people who only brought bought the Friday tickets, which are free, so not really bought, but um, they had they still had access to twelve hours of content and. Uh, that was really fun. In terms of the actual question, uh, tech stuff um, with a virtual format, it comes down to a lot of people reading their emails, uh, <laughs> which I, I I won't shut up about. Uh, that was like the, the anchor point for my closing ceremony statements um, at the actual convention. People like being sent information and then just like not acknowledging it and then jumping in my inbox with questions that I've already answered. Um, so that I think goes with the, the tech literacy aspect. Um, we had, we did use discord. Uh, there were a lot of people who were not as familiar with that as other places. Um, zoom was pretty straightforward. So we didn't have to, um, especially because of COVID everyone's pretty well versed in how zoom works. Um, so we didn't make our training for panelists or anything mandatory. Because um, everybody pretty much knows how to do it. If you needed a kind of a rundown, uh, we offered them, but they, they weren't required. And yeah, just just the, the tech setup. Uh, we were kind of, I do all of the tech stuff for the magazine. So the website design, most of the newsletter stuff. So I had all of those skills already kind of intact. And those weren't really problems. A lot of things were just um, user error and then trying to figure out how to um, create tiered um, member access spaces on the website so that people could get access to the content they were supposed to get. So, and if I could just, uh, I, I said a couple of challenges, but I didn't say advantages. Um, one of the cool things that we did find uh, with the online versus in person is the accessibility of it. You know, being able to reach people who can't travel, you know, either because of health or cost or work conflicts, that was quite cool. And there actually was a, a one sort of unexpected, really great part of this whole thing was uh, the mentoring and pitch sessions. So uh, we we have a pretty fleshed out writer's track, and for people who are interested in writing or who have already written something and are looking to get published, we do mentoring sessions or pitch sessions where you can pitch to a publisher, that sort of thing. And we figured out that on Zoom. If you just have everyone meet in a main room and then go off to uh, breakout rooms, have your pitch session or have your mentoring session and then come back in, it actually made for a really fun interactive part of the convention um, that would not have been possible in the same way in person. So that was an unexpected fun thing. The other really great part about virtual is at the end of 
con, all of your content's recorded. You know, um, you you have it. You have this huge digital library that you've created, and you can use it for running things during the rest of the year, or for marketing, or whatever. And that's something that not all conventions, especially smaller ones, um, are able to do with an in-person con. Not everyone can afford the videography, um, you know, and the the tech that it takes to to record on site. So. That has been a, a really fun, fun portion. I actually got to attend sessions this year because of it. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating to me to hear uh, all the differences between uh, virtual and physical cons. And it is good to hear that there are so many advantages as well as, uh, as to be expected, the challenges. Um, but kind of building off of what several of you have been saying uh, with the recorded sessions as well as accessibility, kind of my question is just, how do you make a virtual con as accessible as possible, both for the panelists and for the actual attendees? So uh, one of the best ways that we found um, is to use platforms that have built-in captioning capabilities. Um, You know, it's always best if you can to have live captioning. It can be extremely expensive, so it's very dependent on your budget. But things like the open broadcasting software uh, and YouTube, they all do have built-in captioning. On websites, uh, you can design in order to make them uh, readable by screen readers, those sorts of things. Um, And for us, we actually did ours. uh, We actually offered the whole weekend for free just for a, a, a cost aspect. It was you know, this year's been a dumpster fire. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, people are struggling with money and uh, we were lucky that we were able to make it work without having to do a huge out expenditure of money on our part. And then we were able to offer for free um, for anyone who wanted to come. We made sure we had um, for FiaCon, we had live captioning for just about everything. Um, some of our content ended up being pre-recorded just for scheduling reasons. Um, and our captioning provider, the same people who provided the live captions provided um, the SRT files or the subtitle files for our pre-recorded content. Um, and I just got the invoice from them today. So for all three days, um, it was about $4,000 uh, in terms of what something like that costs, but um, we were expecting that from the beginning because we knew how essential it was to make sure that, you know, we hadn't overlooked people who need um, captions. So that, um, and then again, I do web design stuff anyway, so I'm used to the 503 um, compliance uh, standards, stuff like that. It's, um, and then in terms of making sure that we are accessible. Our community team, um, people who handled um, accessibility inquiries, our tech team, we made sure that everyone had uh, really thorough, really plain instructions um, just to make sure that in relaying that, that information to attendees, you know, that, that things were being communicated um, clearly to account for, you know, anyone with any kind of inability to kind of navigate these spaces, especially virtually, um, especially in fandom, uh, where a lot of users are older and not as experienced with a lot of the platforms um, that we're kind of being forced to use now. Um, We just made sure that we kind of kept things as simple as possible for the people who need it to be as simple as possible. Um, And I think that covered a lot of our bases. Yeah, I think for, um, for Conseil and Fringe, 
so we were using YouTube as our main content, sorry, our main, our only content host. Um, there were there were sort of positive reasons for doing that um, in particular, so that um, Claire, who was running things, she is a booktuber and part of the uh, process of setting up the fringe was actually to bring in booktube and that community of people. So for anyone who doesn't know, booktube is people who make YouTube videos about books. And it's a really awesome community of, um, of fans um, who use that space. So we had hosting from the various different channels. Uh, all the content was streamed online on YouTube via... I always forget the name of the service. It's called StreamYard. I always want to call it StreamDuck because it has like a little duck logo. So I just thought about ducks all week. <laughs> uh, very genre relevant. Um, yeah, so we had that system set up um, and then it was a matter of making sure that everyone had the instructions to use that and the expectations were clear. Um, one element we didn't get right was the um, the captioning. Um, that was purely because of the time and the fact that we had zero budget. Uh, so we weren't able to provide anything more than the sort of pretty terrible YouTube automatic captions. But yeah, and so I think the the experience of having it on YouTube, which is... Yeah, it's a it's a social media hell site. Um, so there are expectations that go along with that. Um, so on the one hand, we were able to offer the content to a very wide range of people. On the other hand, you are you are then not creating a con space, and because it was a fringe, I think we were we were kind of okay with that. That that Worldcon was Worldcon, and this was something separate, and it um, it didn't have its own space per se, but. Yeah, that that's certainly something that I would think about for for future events, and certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't host an entire con on YouTube um, because you just wouldn't you wouldn't be able to provide that kind of safe single space that um, that a lot of the good virtual cons um, are providing. The three of you have a variety of experiences with this, so something that I'm kind of interested in diving into a little bit is, you know, my first thought would be as someone who's never run a convention before that your virtual convention is like way, 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 way cheaper to run than a physical convention. And even if that's true, I know it's not necessarily like cheap to run a virtual convention. So uh, I guess let's talk about budgeting and financing a convention like this. So how much does an event like this, how much can we reasonably expect it to cost? And uh, how do you prioritize where that money goes? I guess, Elle, if you want to take this first. Okay, so we spent, um, with our final invoices uh, for captioning that came in today, we spent twenty-four, approximately $24,000. Um, and the bulk of that was um, captioning, which didn't end up being uh, as much as I thought it would. We budgeted for it substantially more. That was largely uh, merch fulfillment. We sent out early bird um, physical swag bags uh, to like 200 people, and that was um, that was through kind of a merch fulfillment vendor. Um, boxes included leather-bound journals, two pens. There was a sticker, uh, eight gig flash drive. Pretty much, sort of a, a survival kit um, for attendees for that weekend. Uh, we, oh, I'm, um, we were targeting sorry, writers um, because. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm I'm using your Firecon pen 
at the moment. Um, they were they was a really good guy that you guys sent out. Um, but yeah, really good pens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had um, a lot of a lot of people really love the pens. Um, they were um, like people have actually gone out and bought more of them, so I thought that was fun. But that was probably our biggest ticket item. That and getting um, for the Ignite Awards, getting the trophies made um, and shipped, so like postage. Um, so those were pretty much the big ticket items. Everything else, um, in terms of planning applications, we used uh, Airtable, uh, but we used uh, via the magazine. We already used Airtable for our backend processes, so we just kind of tacked on the convention stuff to that. Um, Google Drive, making sure that everyone could get access to all of our shared files, um, and then the the, the planning planning took place in, uh, we have a Slack space, and then we had bi-weekly meetings on Google Meet. So all of those things are free in, in terms of just the planning. Um, some printing was a little expensive. So really the, the, the expensive things were, of course, the physical things. Server upgrade uh, ran us, I think, like $2,000. And that was necessary in order to give us um, the system where we could host our archives on our own platform versus making them available on like a YouTube or something. Um, the permissions we secured for replaying content um, from all of our panelists covered our distribution. Um, so not having them available on just a general audience platform um, wasn't an option. Yeah, so 25 grand, most of that was covered um, in sponsorship dollars actually. Um, so SIFWA was um, our primary, our initial donor, actually. Um, after the Nebulas, um, I reached out to Mary Robinette, um, just kind of floated this idea because pretty much uh, we were stuck at around 300, 400-ish subscribers to the magazine before kind of the summer of protest thing happened. Um, and then in June, it became very, very popular. Um, on social media to support uh, Black creatives. So we saw this massive influx of subscribers, donorship dollars and things, and having that kind of take care of um, our subscription needs to sustain the magazine for the following year, that's when we decided that we would, you know, just fuck it and do a convention, which is kind of my approach to everything. Just fuck it, we'll do it. Um, <laughs> we... Um, uh, so that happened in June. Uh, SIFWA was the initial sponsorship donor. Um, and then we had um, a couple of staff members like of our early core team um, just kind of reach out to their connects. And we ended up with about um, eight to 10 overall um, sponsors for the event. So that worked out nicely. And then the um, tickets were $40 a head. Um, which once those sold out, those paid for um, the swag boxes um, and like half a server upgrade. So um, we were we were pretty flush. What we are looking at now is we have about ten grand to stick in the coffers for FiCon twenty twenty one. Don't ask me for additional details because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's going to happen probably. Um, but we're sticking that in there. Uh, we're going to keep the, the convention funds separate from the magazine. Um, and then the rest of it is going to be 
paying our volunteer team and that'll be it well, which is something that i would like to see happen across the board um anyway having not having everything that's community-based um reliant on getting free labor out of people so we we told our volunteers from the beginning um that we hoped to turn a substantial enough profit to get them at least an honorarium um for their service um and we're able to actually make good on that thanks to some pretty spiffy budgeting and donors like you and uh, that's it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, it's always great to kind of hear the behind the scenes process and exactly how you made it work. I know uh, after the con ended immediately after I was following all the threads on Twitter where people were sort of doing a similar thing. Uh, and that's always interesting information and I think valuable for other uh, people organizing conventions. I guess, uh, Ali or Adri, I don't know uh, if you feel like you have anything you want to add to the whole budgeting and finance side of things. Um. I can. Um, so ours is a very, very different. Um, we actually barely spent any money at all on on our convention. Um, now, part of that was due to the fact that uh, you know we have uh, people in leadership with with <laughs> very strong technical skills and and crazy computers at home that were able to process huge amounts of um, digital content and, and upload and, and things like that very quickly. We also got a lot of uh, really great help from Continual uh, and Jim Nettles. So Continual is, uh, it began at the beginning of um, quarantine and it's basically uh, a company that exists to help conventions learn how to go virtual. And uh, they advised us on open broadcasting, um, how to manage all of our digital content, that sort of thing. So uh, to be quite honest, uh, the only expenses that we had past, you know, we have ongoing physical storage expenses and things like that, that we would have to pay no matter what, um, you know, whether we do con in person or not. Uh, but other than that, the only uh, additional costs that we had were some software upgrades and and, and that sort of stuff. We, uh, we actually didn't charge for, you know, memberships or dealer tables and, and all of that. So we really didn't have the option to spend a whole lot of money. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the the biggest I think the biggest thing that we spent money on really was the the software for things like we did a charity drive for the Equal Justice Initiative and we wanted to make sure that that was easy for everyone to do so we got some software that we could use to help track that um, and honestly I I think overall we may have spent three hundred to five hundred dollars total so completely opposite end. <laughs> Well, Adri, I am curious because I, I don't believe Conzealand Friend had like really a working budget at all. So my question for you then is more on the time cost of things. So what sorts of work did you have to put in because you didn't have that working budget? That's a very good question. So I guess from conception to the Conzealand Fringe itself, I think Claire put in about three weeks. Uh, the rest of us on the team put in about two weeks, one of which was the fringe itself. Uh, so it really, really was a, a very tight turnaround from having the idea and going, oh, someone should do this. And then sort of from a combination of misplaced enthusiasm and spite going, well, I guess we're doing it now. So yeah, it was 
I mean, in some ways that was possible because we had already got the time off work. Uh, so because I was already expecting to sort of stay up for 24 hours a day watching Conzeal and panels, it was then not that much of an extra pressure to be like, well, why don't I spend the daylight hours running my own convention content and then the nighttime hours watching someone else's convention content that would be a really brilliant restful week off uh so that's what i did yeah so it was it was really a, a sort of 18 hour to 24 hour days um for our core team um we were then also reliant i think on a lot of a lot of volunteer labor beyond that so it, it was pulling from networks um from Con Zealand itself, um, there was a Slack group that was going on that was sort of sharing some of the information that participants wanted, and uh, we were sort of using that a little bit. But yeah, and then we have, uh, so we still have several volunteer um, transcribers that we're working with. We had people sort of running in to, to pull in different panelists and, um, and work out how we were going to put things together. So it was very much not the way that I would advise anyone to run a con and certainly, yeah, not even a fringe. It was a response to a particular circumstance. But I think what we managed to put together was something that demonstrated the proof of concept of actually there are a lot of ways that we can use this virtual space um, to you know, to put on our own things and to also enhance what's being offered by existing cons uh, like Worldcon. So we do a little bit further down the line want to put together a pack that would be useful for uh, for future con runners who will ideally spend more than three weeks between thinking they want to do it and actually doing it uh, so that that's more accessible to more people as well. That is impressive, by the way, <laughs> that you guys pulled that off. <laughs> And you really do know how to take time off from work, don't you? I mean, my next holiday is going to be moving house. Yeah, yeah, you really do know how to take time off. <laughs> so another thing I was curious to pick y'all's brains about, um, and it's not necessarily by default different between a physical convention and an online convention, and I know between the three of you, you have different experiences with this, but how do you go about booking guests for your con? Because I, I believe Multiverse is still somewhat geographically constrained to how uh, the original physical con was, but Con Zealand Fringe and Fiacon are uh, not with that restriction. So I guess, how do you approach that with time zones, trying to get a diversity of perspectives, all of the above? Um, for uh, for Fiacon, uh, we solicited, I think, maybe 20 people for, for participation because really, as this was a first... Um, venture. None of us had ever run a convention before. Uh, we didn't really know what to expect in terms of enthusiasm. Uh, so we solicited um, some names just to make sure that, you know, we could kind of actually garner interest, first of all. Um, so we solicited, I think, about 15 to 20 people, maybe. And then once we kind of like made the announcement and saw this sort of groundswell of support, we opened up um, a couple of forms. People could pitch us uh, panel ideas and then also uh, volunteer themselves uh, to be on programming. Um, so having done that, I think from there, uh, we also, um, Brent, uh, who is my senior programming coordinator um, for the convention, he and I, we kind of brainstormed some panels, some things that we wanted to see in the first place and made sure that uh, we solicited people 
who would be able to cover those topics like expertly. And then uh, the other, I think we maybe only brainstormed for a third of our, our programming and then the other two thirds uh, were crowdsourced um, from people who pitched us things um, via those forms. So I think what happened organically, because we are by and large uh, black indigenous people of color team, our connects sort of ran along those lines as well. So it really wasn't a problem getting diversity or representation or anything. And then with Fringe, what Vita Yuri uh, provided was like immaculate. Like it, it, Fringe was so well done and I was really, really, really excited to see how well it was received um, because it was so necessary. It's not something, um, you know, free access, diverse access, global access to, to a specific event, especially one that's based in the West. It doesn't happen. Um, and so with Fringe, they were able, because they were in like global South territories, other time zones, I think that because they were a part of that group, they were also able to kind of pick out people um, from those areas who have the same, you know, Western gripes, essentially, about how everything, you know, we do is centered around us. They were able to kind of pick those names out of a hat or from their own social circles or experiences and bring them along too. And it worked out really super well. And then I think we actually had some French people who stayed up for some of our regular weekend panels, which is ridiculous because you will never catch me up at two, three o'clock in the morning talking to anyone, especially on a Zoom call. So uh, along the same sort of lines, uh, so when we started Multiverse a couple of years ago, um, one of the reasons uh, Jesse Adams, my co-chair, and I wanted to do the convention is that we... But there, there's a lot of work out there in speculative fiction um, that is not getting featured as as largely as it should be. It's not getting as much recognition as it should be, um, and we wanted to to try to make sure that we were doing that. Um, so one of the the beautiful thing things about speculative fiction is just the multitude of perspectives, um, and so we specifically look to include many different perspectives. So in, in terms of guest selection, we actually reach out to the guests of honor. But other than that, people uh, apply, uh, you know, and go through and our programming team accepts, uh, you know, the people that they they want to have on their panels. Um one of the the biggest things that we found that was important for making sure that it was not just um so so I am a white woman um and my my co-chair is a white guy um and so we did not want to be the people picking the programming so we actually have a team of programming folks our track directors uh, who come from a diverse background everybody is a little you know comes from a, a slightly different point of view. And so they're the ones making the decisions on whom to invite, what panels they want to feature, that sort of stuff. So once we have people apply, uh, the track directors decide whom they want, they send out the acceptances, and then um, they actually send out programming interest surveys. So basically, these are the panels that we're thinking of having. So what would you be interested in, in you know, 
serving on? Which panels would you like to do? Um, and then from there, they whittle it down to, to make sure that everybody gets, you know, some of what they want. <laughs> so that actually uh, tends to work out. I, I like I say, am, we, we provide a framework, but they are the ones making those decisions. And, uh, you know, for, for us, so organic inclusion is kind of how we look at what we do. Um, I, I never want to walk into a, a panel and it be five white dudes or, you know, walk into a panel on women in science fiction and it's three guys and one woman. <laughs> Um, so what we do is we try to include the diverse perspectives on each panel so that you get it sort of organically included. Um, if that makes sense. Um, we, we don't tend to have, uh, panels that are titled things like diversity and speculative fiction or that sort of thing, because I don't want it to be some tokenism, you know, thing where it's, oh, well, you know, we're going to put people on this one who have differences. <laughs> um, I would much prefer to get the diverse perspectives on other topics, on everything, um, rather than just on, you know, hey, tell me what your perspective is just on this one thing because of the color of your skin. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for us as well, like we had a, a significantly smaller um, programming schedule to fill. We had uh, two panels on most of the weekdays and then three on the evenings because we were only running panels during um, non-Con Zealand hours. So despite the fact that that we were an all-white team that ended up doing the main volunteering, we were all coming from a position where it was just a complete non-starter to have a panel that would be all white participants. It would be a complete non-starter to have all participants of the same gender. We don't want to have any panels that don't have open LGBTQIA representation because that for us is, is not something that we would choose to go and see and that's not something you know when I look around at what this genre is that I want to be part of a community with that is absolutely not the the community space that I think any of us are, are involved in that's that's sort of quite a different world in a way so yeah for us that was that was something that was that was always part of how we were developing the programming. Uh, the programming itself was developed. So we, um, by we, I mean Claire primarily, and then uh, the team sort of came in. Uh, so we developed the the sort of ideas around the programming that we wanted. Uh, we put together the titles and the, um, the sort of draft panel descriptions first. Um, and we wanted that to, to target a few different things that weren't in the the main convention so one thing was bringing some of the the sort of booktube type conversations because it was being hosted on booktube so that was a sort of crossover element um we wanted to present things that were about fandom but more about the um the kind of digital fandom that we weren't seeing in the world con panel so uh sort of going beyond what is a podcast um and can a fanzine be online in 2020 
so yeah taking it taking it a little bit past there um and then we had people so we had cheryl morgan come in to do a panel on sensitivity reading and and she just came in and pulled together all her panelists and and did that um we did things about um sort of retrospectives from 2020 and and looking forward and yeah just just a set of things that that we felt represented what we wanted to see because honestly there was not much time to do much else other than what we felt were the gaps that were there um and then once we had the the panel descriptions it was very much just a case of reaching out to lots and lots of people to um to see who wouldn't be wouldn't be offended and would be open to doing a panel sometimes in you know sort of four hours time in a few cases so yeah it it was very much based on our networks and our availability again that's something where for for future events um i wouldn't want to do it exactly that way i think that having space for people to approach you is really important because there are elements of bias in terms of who we know and who we want to reach out to that we didn't have the systems to overcome but yeah i was i was pretty pleased with the the people we ended up getting there were a few fangirl moments for me as well of like oh my gosh that person's on a panel with us um but yeah it was a fun process for sure right and then just sort of i guess holistically looking at everything uh from everything that we've been talking about so far what are just some of the key lessons learned and sort of best practices that you think you would apply for a future online con if we have not already covered them already um scared when you import events does not accept backslashes um so don't do that um <laughs> that that led to some confusion and some glitchy panel descriptioning that created more work ultimately uh time communications well so that you know once you've introduced a concept or a feature you, you're, you're equipped um to have somewhere to point people uh, so that you're not just sort of answering questions about a piecemeal uh, that ends up eating a lot of my time. Um, and I'm not a fan. Um, read your emails. Make sure other people read their emails. Delegation, uh, which is something that I have never actually been very good at, um, but had to sort of trial by fire or by fire. Ha ha. I appreciate that. That was, good. That was <laughs> so, really good. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we had uh, a team ultimately of about 50 volunteers by the end. Um, started out with a core of uh, seven, eight people um, who became more or less department heads. Um, and then as we found um, need, we met every other uh, week on a Thursday night to kind of check in, get status updates, new marching orders, stuff like that. Um, so every time during one of those meetings, um, one of the department heads was like, Hey, I need new hands for this or whatever. We had also had a form up for people who were interested in volunteering in like a non being on programming capacity. And we had a volunteer coordinator, um, who could just kind of like go through those applications and see who would be a good fit, who has these, this needed skill set, um, and get them plugged in and oriented and ready to go. But we weren't really aggressive about getting the, um, the volunteers into the game until about halfway through. So FireCon was planned, started planning probably like the end of June, middle end of June. Um, and we went live, obviously, uh, middle of October. Uh, so we did not have a whole lot of time. And like halfway, that halfway point was kind of like, oh, hey, no, actually this stuff is moving really fast and you need more hands. So that became, kind of became a thing. 
But yeah, definitely delegate, make use of your volunteers. They're there for a reason. They, they understand that they're volunteers. Don't be afraid to give them things to do. And in meetings, um, I think one of the really good things we did as a team uh, was, was that we, we made sure it felt like a team. So like all of our calls, they weren't just um, strictly business. Uh, we weren't limiting discourse or who could pitch ideas or anything in the Slack space. Uh, we, we just, you know, you make everyone feel like they have a stake in, in the success of this thing. Um, and they will absolutely, you know, turn out for you. Um, the, the convention went really super well, minus technical glitches that we had no control over and no one ever does and was the source of many a migraine, but uh, it would not have been possible without, you know, those people being as invested in this vision, um, as I was when I presented it to them. So I, I think for for multiverse, um, we had a few things that I I will hold on to for you know if we ever have to do another online. Um, one of our one of the things that turned out um, to be really nice is we were able to create some online social spaces where although it does not replace, you know, an in-person convention where you can all get together in a room and, um, and, and chat, um, it felt more like that than I expected it to. We had watch parties. So, uh, when a panel was scheduled to, uh, to air, um, we would have a watch party on discord where we would chat, including the panelists about what was going on. And that gave an entirely different fun perspective because panelists were able to say, no, 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 that wasn't exactly what I meant. What I really meant was this thing. Um, so, you know, all of those things that you figure out in the shower, you know, the next day that I should have said that they all got to say them. Um, and everybody had a lot of fun interacting that way. Um, one thing that was, was kind of an interesting one, uh, is traffic patterns, are way different on online cons than they are in in person cons. Uh, so when you're in person, you know generally your your busiest times are, uh, you know Saturday midday through that night. Um, but here uh, online, the evenings were huge. Friday afternoon. We had tons of people. <laughs> um, now, I don't know if what they were just like checking in from work <laughs> or everybody's working from home. So they're doing both things or, or what. But Friday afternoon was a gigantic influx of people. And then it was a little quieter than uh, we would have expected a lot of times for an in-person con for a Saturday afternoon. But then Saturday evening, again, was a large turnout for uh, we, we always do a, a writers at the bar uh, program where, you know, the writers hang out at the bar and chat, you know, whether anyone's having drinks or not, you just hang out and chat with the writers. Um, and, and people showed up in droves to hang out and, and chat online with their favorite authors. Um, I did miss some of the in-person social stuff. <laughs> um, but this was a, this was a, a fairly good approximation um, and again, that mentorship and, and pitches stuff in Zoom, um, I, even if we go back to an in-person con, I kind of want to keep that one because it worked so very well. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, you know, Elle and Ali have already covered a lot of the the really interesting points about 
what makes a virtual con so so great and what you can learn from it. Uh, I feel like for Fringe, so many of the points I'm bringing up are like, oh, well, you know, don't do it like we did this thing. That was a really bad way because we only had two weeks, so do it in a different way that, um, that we now know about because we did that thing in two weeks. So beyond that, Fringe was my first experience of sort of putting together programming and um, and really getting a taste of, of what con running is like. And I would not have done that. I, I don't normally spend my holidays uh, working 18-hour days to put together programs and then stay up all night watching other programs. But I did it because it was it was an idea and a team that I was really passionate about um, and something that I really, really wanted to see for this community. And I saw that, um, hey, maybe maybe I can do a tiny little piece to make that happen. Um, and I think, yeah, that to me, uh, you know, not to get sort of sappy and, and weird, but for me, that is a really important part of something like this as well, that it is, it is a huge labor of love and it has to be it has to be something that you love and are passionate about. And I certainly, um, yeah, I came out of Fringe thinking a lot more about what I wanted to get out of the genre community as a whole and, and what did I what I wanted to see from virtual spaces in future. Um, and it was really exciting, actually, to, to join Firecon and, and to see that realized and, and that kind of, yeah, the direction in which you guys took that event was just amazing. So, yeah, do We do literally would not have done that had you not done it first. Firecon would not have done our fringe programming had you not done it first. So that was a really big inspiration. So thank you for doing that. No, that's really great to hear. Sort of wrapping things up, but before we do, I think we've hit on a lot of the key points. But as someone who's obviously never actually run a con, I don't know what I don't know. So any final thoughts you want to leave us with? I think most importantly, and what I keep trying to kind of hammer into people's heads, is that you can start a convention. Like, it's easy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Easy-ish. Um, and by easy, I mean it's easy to be passionate about it. Uh, the logistics, it takes some finagling, but for the most part, um, it's it's worth it. Um, if you find yourself constantly uh, in a situation where you are begging older, perhaps more prestigious entities to recognize and value your contributions to the, to the genre. And it's something that you're doing every single year to no avail. Uh, you can just start your own thing and it can become a celebrated thing. It can be the new prestigious thing that people are looking forward to being a part of. It will be better um, because you care to make it better. So if I did this in four months, less than $2,500, I mean, $25,000, haha. And the sponsorship funds are, are out there. Um, I've told people um, in our closing ceremonies that Brent and myself were making ourselves resources. If you have any questions, you're looking to start your own thing, uh, we're happy to help uh, lend resources where we can. Um, just let us know. Yeah, I, I absolutely, Elle has that, she hit it right on. Um, just because something is a tradition or something has been around for a long time um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right or only or best thing. And uh, representation and inclusion uh, should be a given, but if it's not, make it happen. Do it your way. Go to Fiacon. 
come to multiverse, invite fringe, do the things that bring recognition to the stuff that you love. I think that um, the atmosphere, the the sort of um, the feeling that I'm getting with a lot of the speculative fiction stuff is that things are getting better, um, but it's getting better because of the amount of pressure that's being put on. <laughs> um, and it's, it is because of things like Fiatcon that that's happening. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, my, I think my ending contribution is the same that I've made, which is don't make the mistakes that some of us have made. Um, so there definitely are lots of resources out there for people um, looking to do this now. So um, Flight to Foundry also has a great sort of video on people putting together online events um as l says she and brendan are available the conceal and fringe team is still available although we're all slightly overworked and um, inexplicably volunteering for awards juries in november so i'm not sure how that happened um but i i do hope that that the virtual events that have gone on so far uh, serve as that blueprint that these spaces can be something better and we can keep learning from the initial events we've had and um and yeah really make this ours fantastic advice all around well before we go where can our audience find you and since you seem to have been going last adri if you want to start Absolutely. Um, so I am a co-editor at Nerds of a Feather Flock Together. That is nerds-feather.com. Um, I am also on Twitter at AdriJJY. Uh, um, you can find me on Twitter, L the Villain, E-L-L-E, the Villain. Um, check out Fia, F-I-Y-A-H, Lit Mag, um, also on Twitter. Same thing on the internet. Uh, our pre-order our subscription pre-orders for 2021 are going on now through the end of the year um after that prices go up um and you can find uh details about the convention it's theconvention.violetmag.com and last but not least Allie. yeah um so multiverse happens the third weekend of october every year um registration for 2021 is open although you know we will see if that's online or in person. And if it is online, it will be free again and we'll roll over any <laughs> registrations to the following year. We are on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We are at MultiverseCon and our website is multiversecon.org. All right. Well, that's everything I have for you. Thank you all so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share what you've learned putting together online conventions. Uh, once things are more or less back to normal, I don't see physical conventions ever going away for good, but I suspect that we'll be seeing more and more of these virtual events in the future. 